Welcome back to Seeing Life from a Different Angle. This is podcast number six, and I feel compelled today to talk about the question of loneliness. First, I wanted to, again, thank my nephew Alec for the intro music and um, gotten a lot of positive response for it. So I want to thank him very much for that. So loneliness, you know, from my experience doing therapy for all these years and working with people who struggle with sadness and despair and depression, anxiety, loneliness is a common thread. It's something that runs across the board for everyone. And I don't think that there's anyone who goes to therapy who at some level or another does not feel the depth of loneliness. In a lot of cases, I think it's what really brings people into therapy that kind of hit a point where they feel such a depth of loneliness in their lives. And so what does loneliness mean? You know, I remember and heard this many times, of course, but I remember a patient saying to me once that, you know, we're all born alone and we all die alone. But I have to say, I don't agree at all. I mean, I think that in those very first moments of life that we are not alone. We have our mothers who give birth to us, whether they want to or not, whether they are happy that we're there or not. One way or another, we're not alone. You know, we're in this space where in that moment we are hopefully able to get the gratification we need, but we know that we're not alone in this world in that moment. And if we were conscious of what was going on around us, you know, we would recognize that peace. I think the same is true for when we die. I don't believe that we're alone then either. It goes back to something that I talked about in my blog this past week when I related a story that I'll relate to you now about a patient of mine. He had talked to me about how he was upset with God and that God had abandoned him. He was going through difficult times. He was not sure where his life was leading, you know, who loved him, who didn't love him, whether he loved or didn't love. And, you know, should he stay with his job, should he not stay with his job, sell his house, not sell his house. You know, first world problems in many ways, but painful problems because they were plaguing his life and they were perpetual. And he said, you know, the sad piece of it is, is I feel very much alone in dealing with these things that, whereas one time I believe that God was there with me through these things, in truth, I don't think that God's there anymore. And I said to him, imagine that you, in your mind, that you draw this picture, that you have God and you have you, and you're both looking at each other with love. And God keeps looking at you in that way, but you become distracted. Like we talked about before, you know, you become focused more on the realities of the world realities within your fenced in yard and so you become focused on these things so you start turning just a little bit at first but turning more and more and more away from the gaze of god looking at you and you become so focused on these things these material things oftentimes you know the money or there's sex or there's violence or there's longings or there's drugs or alcohol or any number of other things. You know, we become so focused on these things of the world that we turn our back on God. 
And he had done something very similar. He'd become very focused on these things in his life. And as a consequence, felt very, very much alone. You know, his complaint that God was not there with him was really a complaint about his loneliness. And I said, but what would happen if you turned around? What would you see? Would you see God looking at you? In many ways, I believe that God doesn't turn away from us. And in the last moments of life, just like in the first moment of life, we are not alone. Theodore Reich, who was a psychoanalyst, once said that even the hermit has God. You know, even though the hermit may be completely alone in the desert, God is with him. And I think, you know, when I related this story to my patient, you know, I talked about as well that this is much like a perfect or loving or nurturing mother. You know, the mother will look at her child with a degree of depth of love and will keep looking at that child with love. And if there's something that we as parents can be proud of, it is, I hope, that we continue to look to our children and at our children with love. I think the difference between God and human beings is what my friend Tom refers to as the vacillation. You know, we struggle as human beings with fear. We struggle with anxieties and trepidations and our own pathology. And so sometimes we stop looking at those that we love with love and become so focused on what it is that's going on inside of us. So how does it come to pass that we become alone? I think it's complicated. It's much like we talked about last week, the options that are open to us. You know, what would Jesus do in these circumstances? Would he choose path number one, path number two, path number three, or would he choose option or path number four, where he walks on in his life in a healthy way? We tend to choose one of the first three options, and we do, because we become disconnected. We become a part, not a part, but a part from the people that matter to us in our lives. Not because we desperately want to, but because we struggle to get what it is we need. Our ego struggles to get what it is that it needs. And it'll do nigh on anything to get that gratification. Even if it means that we pull away from those who are best for us, who are most loving for us, who are most kind to us. There are people out there who will, if they looked at their lives, could say, you know, this person really does love me, I don't let them love me. You know, this person is there looking at me and looking at me with love, but I'm not willing to look back. So how did that come to pass? Why did we choose one of these unhealthy options? How did we become so lonely? If I'm right, we weren't born that way. So how did we get that way? The answer can be found in the simplest of observations. You know, it's like the story of the child who longs for her mother or for his mother to pick him up and hold him. You know, we find ways to get what it is we need when the world isn't willing to give us those things. I don't think there's a single moment in life where we can say that we are getting all that we need from our parents because they're human beings who, as I say, you know, vacillate in their ability to look at us with love all the time. 
I'm reminded of an experience in my own life when I think I began to feel the depth of my own loneliness was when I was about to enter kindergarten. My parents, my brothers and I, we lived in this little town in Florida called Merritt Island. My dad worked for IBM building rockets for NASA, which was always a source of pride for all of us. And we had this home where, you know, my mother was very at home. She was present. She was attentive. She was caring. She was loving. And kindergarten came along. Now, I'm the second oldest of five boys. And my mother and I, I felt, were very, very close. And I did not want to be away from her any more than I really wanted to be away from my siblings. But it was really her that I wanted to spend time with. And I remember her taking me to kindergarten and her having to pull me off of her because I was so desperate to stay with her. And I remember when I was finally pulled free from her by the teacher and brought into the classroom, I isolated myself. I felt the beginnings of loneliness in my own life. And I think what ended up causing that was that I felt like I was getting all that I knew I could get from my relationship with my mother. And here was a circumstance that I didn't know. And could I be certain? No, I couldn't be certain that I was going to get here what it is I was getting at home. So back to the question then, how does it come to pass that one begins to feel lonely? I think that loneliness begins when the ego begins to recognize that it is not going to get what it is that it's looking for from the people that matter to us in our lives. So in truth, the first periods of loneliness are moments of separation from our parents, moments of realization that they're otherwise occupied or they're doing the things that they need to do. And it leaves me longing for something that I thought I had, but I, for whatever reason, can seem to no longer find. It's what C.S. Lewis and the ancient Greeks called storgi, which is a form of love. But it is a form of love that we experience when we are being raised by our parents and when we raise our own children. It's a, a sense of love that is based upon the desire to take care of another human being. But it's also a sad source of jealousy and frustration because we recognize that others are also looking to be taken care of. Others are also looking to be loved. And so I think when we think about it, we can't deny what Freud talked about, that we have this sibling rivalry and not just with our siblings, but anyone that our mother loves, anyone that our father loves that isn't us, is going to lead us to desperately find distorted and later pathological ways of getting what it is we need from the world around us. The complication is this. Every step I move away, every distorted process I take, leads me to disconnect from what it is that I need. Not to grow closer, but to pull apart. You know, to find myself doubting the value of life or doubting the value of love. You know, whether it is a state of nihilism that some individuals experience and the belief therefore that nothing really is of any value 
is a distorted place. It's a place that they have grown toward in their lives. They've grown through connections, felt those connections were not there for them or felt unsafe in those connections and decided, okay, the best thing for me to do is to disconnect. And the sad reality of it is, is that in disconnecting, they ended up leaving themselves lonely. And it goes back to something we've talked about from the very first podcast and the very first blog was the idea that it leads us to a place of self-preservation. And when we are in a place of self-preservation where the goal is just to survive, just to make sure that I can get what it is that I need for my life, when we're in that place, we're alone. We're truly alone. And we're alone because we put ourselves in that place. You know, it goes back to that defensive castle that we've talked about before. I'm in this castle and I'm safe, except the demons are in here with me. My loneliness is in here with me. My lack of sense of worth or value is in here with me. It's when I begin to be plagued by a part of the ego that I refer to as that non-rational part of the ego. A non-rational in the sense that it isn't irrational. It's not like I'm worried that, you know, the aliens are going to fly in through the window and swoop out my brain through my toes. It's not that. It is a sense, though, that predates our rational thinking, where I start to wonder, where do I fit into this world? How do I fit into this space? And it leads me to doubt myself and my worth and my value and whether or not I am lovable. And this goes along with the notion that I've got to protect myself. And so when I'm in a place of self-preservation, when, when I am in a place where I think of what my thoughts are and my feelings are and nothing else, I can't be objective in that space, I am going to be reinforced by the notion that no one really does love or care about me anyway, so I might as well just be here. I might as well just stay apart from others. But the fascinating piece is that even the nihilists, certainly the nihilists that I have worked with in therapy, even the nihilist longs to live at some level or another. So how do we explain that? How do we explain the fact that I'm desperately lonely, I see no value in life, I doubt whether there's much out there for me, and yet I want to live? How do we explain that? I think the answer is to be found in where it is we come from. If you'll remember, one of the things that we ended up talking about is how in the beginning of the development of the ego, we are a child who believes without any hesitation that we are lovable. It's up to the world to decide whether or not that's the case. But in the beginning, we believe that to be so. and We don't think that there are other options. We see no reason to believe that there are other options. And so we lay ourselves out there and we look for the world to love us. And the world has plans. The world will meet those needs or not meet those needs, love us, care for us, take care of us or not take care of us. But one way or another, what ends up happening is it's we all become pathological. We all find unhealthy, distorted ways to get what it is we're looking for. But at the core, we still long for that look of love. You know, I'm thinking about 
the beginning of life and the end of life and how we long for our mothers to look at us the way that we long for God to look at us at the end of our life. To be able to say, come home, I'm here. I love you and I value you. And it's something we've longed for all of our lives. And it's something that the child inside of each of us, buried under all those layers of clothing, still longs for. And no matter how old we get, you know, no matter how, how many experiences we have or how many loves in our life we have or disappointments we have, there's still that child inside of us that longs for the depth of love that we believed we had in the beginning of life. And hopefully for some of us, and hopefully later for many of us, will continue to be the case. And we will find individuals in our lives who love us and value us in the same ways that we felt loved or valued or we longed to feel loved and valued in the very first year of our life. But the sad reality of it is, at the same time, we get in our own way. Like the old saying goes, we are our own worst enemies. We get in our way and we become defensive toward others. We become, as I said before, self-preserving as a way of making sure that we can hold on to what we have. But let's be honest, what do we have? It is so empty. You know, life can be full of so many things. We can have a great job, we can have a great car, we can have great friends, we can make lots and lots of money. But what do we have? You know, without love, without connection, it's worth nothing. We've all heard a thousand times, if we've heard it once, you know, you can't take it with you when you go. But the truth of it is, you can't take it with you when you're here. What is it that I'm really taking along other than the weight, like the rich man, you know, who refused to give up the things that he had? What was he carrying other than the weight of life? He wasn't happy. He was lonely. Why would he ask Christ, how do I get to heaven if he didn't feel lonely? You know, he longed, just like the child inside of each of us longs for love, he longed for the love of God as well. He just wanted to make sure he was going to get it. And yet he was so tormented by the very thought of having to give up what it is that he had in order to get that. And how fascinating is that, that we are so afraid within our own egos to give up what it is that we have in order to find what it is that we need. It's what we have referred to as maintaining the psychological status quo. How many times do you find yourself in a relationship with someone, romantic or otherwise, you know, your friends or your lovers or whatever the case might be, and yet, for goodness sake, how come this person ends up being exactly the same person that I've always known, just in a different body? You know, it's because the ego is so used to maintaining the status quo and it will hold on to that status quo and maintain it at all costs, even if it means some level of destruction for us. Because at some level or another, the ego inside that defensive castle at least feels secure that I can have what it is I have, that 25 cents versus the dollar that we talked about before. You know, it has that little bit 
and at least that little bit is okay. It is like the crumbs that fall from the table for a dog. And I'll, I'll take it, I'll take it, if that's all that I can have. It's not a meal, it's not nourishment, it's not gratifying. Because the only thing that truly is, psychologically speaking, gratifying, is for us, is for us to move up the line toward a healthier place. It is for us to move into a healthier space where a connection is what gratifies us. Not fantasy, not artificial pleasures that come and go like the rich man's gold. You know, those artificial pleasures will not buy me anything because they cannot buy me love. To steal a line from the Beatles. You cannot purchase love and connection and affection from another human being by having things. If someone is in your life because of what it is you possess, whether that's because you're incredibly attractive and someone wants to possess you sexually, or whether it is because you're jovial and jocular and someone loves being around you because you make them laugh, those types of things aren't connections. They're just moments. They're not true love. They're just moments where two people are engaged in something that for one of a better way to put it, distracts them, leaves them feeling less lonely. But what happens when the conversation is over and, you know, your friends go their way and you go your way? You're left with your mind alone again, back to the same places that you came from and the griefs and the worries and the fears and the trepidations and the sadness that you felt before. They find their way back in. They find their way back into your psyche and you find yourself wondering again and worrying again, fearful again and anguishing again about whatever it is that torments your mind. And in the end, after everything is said and done, what does it really all come down to? It comes down to a struggle inside of each of us to allow ourselves to take the risk of letting someone else see value in us of letting someone else gratify our ego's needs in ways that are truly healthy and nourishing for us. We are fools. We truly are because we step in the way of what it is that is truly a great blessing for us. As I said last week in the podcast, I was talking about one's relationship with God and how we tend to avoid going through the open door because we are afraid, afraid of giving up what it is we have. And really, when we think about it, we're looking at this door, through this door, at those people who are getting healthier in their lives. And we long for what it is they have, but we long for it for the wrong reasons. You know, we're still trapped by our own fears and our own jealousies. But what happens if we stop and we stop and say to ourselves, I don't want to be jealous of what it is they have. I want to have what they have in healthy ways in my life. I want to no longer be lonely. And I think that that begins and has to begin with us taking a risk, remembering what it was like to be a young a child, to be held. And even if we weren't in ways that were healthy for us, we still had longings for that. We need to take the risk, as hard as it is, 
to love and be loved. I'm reminded of a line from A Christmas Carol, and it goes back to what it is that we've talked about in terms of the four cornerstones of any relationship, as well as being able to look at others with a measure of compassion. And that line is that mankind is my business. If we all began to look at life that way, just think about how different life would be because we would stop needing to defend ourselves against what it is we fear because there would be nothing to fear because we know that we were loved. I really want to thank you for listening and I look forward to talking with you soon. I hope that you have a happy Thanksgiving. Be well.